You may be seated. And the sprouts can be dismissed. These are the kids, kindergarten and uh, younger, can be dismissed. Um, and uh, for those three or two or three or, and younger, there's a nursery as well. Uh, let's give our sprout workers a round of applause as they serve our children ever so faithfully. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. 1 Corinthians is the series that we've been in, and we are working our way one chapter at a time through this old letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Follow along in your Bibles, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have a Bible and you're new to the Bible, you can find the page number in the table of contents in your Bible. And as I've mentioned in the past, we are uh, trying to uh, purchase some Bibles uh, for use here on Sundays. And if you would like to donate to that, uh, you can do so and just write Bibles in the memo. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, follow along in your Bible as I read this entire chapter. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire, desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to, to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are, are, are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? What do I impl imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. 
Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is of the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the believers invites you to, uh, to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if somebody says, this has been offered to sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be, term- be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you do open our eyes to this text. Um, there are multiple themes here. Uh, there are, uh, there, there's 2,000 years of history that uh, separates us from the writing of this text, yet this chapter has been speaking to your church and edifying your people for the past 2,000 years. And so we ask that today, as it has done so many times in church gatherings throughout history, that it once again edifies us. And that this, is, uh, this, this, this hits us as if it was written um, specifically to our situation right now in Baltimore, Maryland in 2014. Let it become uh, alive in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start right at the beginning of the chapter there. Uh, what's the first word? Pretend we're in class. For. All right, that's a connector word. Whenever you see for in the Bible, it means that it's connecting whatever went before it. So the thoughts that came before it is now like, like a wedge kind of coming down and he's making a big point. So chapters 8 and 9 were about giving up your rights. Chapters 8 was about giving up your rights to help Christians. So Christians don't fall back into idolatry. So we give up whatever rights uh, in order to help Christians become closer to Jesus. And then chapter 9 was about helping non-Christians. So we give up our rights so that non-Christians may taste and see that Jesus is really good. Four, so now chapter 8 and chapter 9, he's bringing it all together. He's summing it all up and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to go about life unaware of What's going on? Now, chapter 9 ended with this picture of somebody running a race and keeping their eyes focused on the prize. And he said, for us as Christians, we're running the race, and our eyes are focused on the imperishable crown. For, so, so with that being said, let's not be ignorant. And then look how he goes on from there. The verses 2, he says, He says, therefore, our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock. And the spiritual rock, he says, was who? Christ. Okay, what's he saying here? He's saying four. So with this being said, let's think about our spiritual forefathers. By the way, the Corinthians were Gentiles. 
and he's calling Israel their spiritual forefathers. Just an interesting point there. Let's think about our spiritual forefathers. He says, they ate. They ate what? Manna. Remember the manna in the wilderness? He says the manna as they're eating it was a picture. They were eating it in faith. It was, it was a sign of the food that was to come, and that was Christ, okay? They, they drank from the rock. Remember the rock that sprout water? And they're drinking from this in faith. And he says what, what they're actually having faith in, the water that they're really drinking here, isn't just physical water, but it, the water is actually Christ. And so he's saying this, there's not that much difference between them and us. This idea that Old Testament saints were saved in a different way than we are saved today, Paul is saying, no, it doesn't make any sense. So this idea, Old Testament saints, how were they saved? Well, they were saved through following the law, and now we're saved through following Christ. Paul says, no, the law always was there to condemn and to show us that we needed a Savior, they were having faith in the Old Testament in the same person that we are having faith in today, and that is Christ. For them, it was the Christ that is to come. For us, it's the Christ that has come, died, resurrected. So he's saying there's a lot more continuity here than we typically think. Now, why is he doing this, all right? Why is he giving them a lesson in Old Testament history? Look at verse 5. He says, Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now remember, these are the people, the same people who saw ten plagues come through Egypt, all right? Miraculous sort of release from Egypt, from slavery. They are people who saw the Red Sea split apart, all right? And they walked across on dry ground, and then as the enemy came behind, it just so happened that the water came back together. These are people who, when they were hungry, man, bread of some sort started falling from the sky, and it was enough to eat for that day. Uh, these are people who, when they were thirsty, water was, came, came from a rock. Uh, these are people who have seen Christ in remarkable ways. They have a faith that, 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 that has, been a, has a remarkable story behind it. In the same way, we have experienced Christ, and we come every week in this church to partake in the Lord's Supper, and we take the bread in the same way, and and it's a reminder of Christ. So they were eating, looking forward to Christ. We're eating, looking back to what Christ did. They they uh, we take the cup and we drink Christ, the reminder of Christ. He says, nevertheless, as much as they experienced and saw, they fell. How did that happen? How did that happen? I re- just uh, this morning, I was up at 3 in the morning on Facebook. It's what we do when we're up at 3 in the morning, right? And I saw an article of just this last week, a pastor in Connecticut of a large church, uh, been married for 25 years, successful ministry, um, came out to his church I guess last Sunday, that he had an affair. Um, And being questioned by all the members after the church service, literally he had a heart attack and died. Um, How does that happen? I mean, how does someone, uh, uh, an older man, 
been faithful in ministry for years, end in that way. Fall. Uh, we, we hear the stories all the time. A megachurch pastor who uh, has been hiding a, a, a prostitute addiction for the last several years, and it, it all comes out publicly. How does that happen? How does somebody go from experiencing the goodness of God and, wow, life is, Jesus is good, and then shipwrecked? A mother whose children go to Christian school, she sings in their church on Sundays duets with her husband, teaches Sunday school classes, kids' programs throughout the week. And then one day decides to have an affair. Ends up clubbing and finding a guy and leaves the family in pursuit of a fleshly life. How, how does this happen? Are you guys tracking with, with what, what Paul is sort of bringing out these are people who have experienced the goodness of God and they fell. Now, here's the reality. Every single one of us in this room is in danger of falling. All right, we're in danger of shipwrecking our lives. No, uh, no, no marriage is uh, safe, all right? No celibate single person is strong enough. Um, we are all in danger of wrecking our lives. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church as a father, I believe, would speak to his 18-year-old daughter who's going away to college for the first time. All right? You can only imagine how that conversation would go. Please, just listen to me. And she's like, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Like, no, just listen to me. You don't know, all right? Um, you don't know. God, men, men are crazy, all right? Um, you are in danger. You're, you're going out into this, into this dangerous world, and you could easily wreck yourself, all right? Please remember these things that we have taught you growing up. Please don't forget, all right, I'll probably have this conversation twice and then a third with my son. Um, in the same way, Paul loves the church in Corinth. Now, it's not easy to be a Christian in Corinth, all right? Any easier, or it's no easier than it would be going off to college actually be much harder. Uh, in Corinth, you cannot go a day without getting invited to your neighbor's house to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an, an idol and then possibly get sucked back into idolatry into the practices all around you. Uh, the temptation to slip back down to the temple and, and worship with one of the thousand temple prostitutes. The temptation is huge. And so here is this little baby church in the middle of Corinth. How do, how do you live as a Christian in Corinth without wrecking your life? And so Paul is giving one final warning. This is what it's all been about, he's saying. I, as we're talking about giving up your rights, this is about fleeing idolatry. It's about not wrecking your life. Now, 
as this applies to every single one of us today, because we are all in danger of completely falling, wrecking our lives, I want to I point out four, um, uh, four, four reasons that we fall from this passage. Number one, reason number one, we fall because we are prone to fall. We fall because we're prone. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 7. He says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. So right here, he starts going back to Israel, and he, he just has a, a list of sins. So verse 7, they fell into idolatry. There's Moses up on the mountain. Remember this story? Moses on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and down below, they start to question whether or not God is good, and they build a golden calf, and they say, this is, our, this is the God this is the representation of the God that brought us out of Egypt. And so they, they quickly fell into idolatry. In verse 8, he says that there was sexual immorality. They indulged in sex, sexual immorality. And as a result, their corpses were spread across the desert. In verse 9, they put Christ to the test. And they were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, they grumbled. So here they are being provided by God every step of the way, and as soon as it gets difficult again, what do they do? Grumble. Now how many of you can say this, this might be relevant to your life? Grumbled. Amen. Now why did these things happen? This is the key. Look at verse 6. He says, these things took place as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. That's a huge statement. What that's saying is, is that this entire book, all right, the, the whole Old Testament, and as we read stories from the Old Testament about the wilderness wandering, he says, all of this was written for you. All of this was written so that you might have examples of people who wreck their lives. So that you might uh, not do the same. Look at verse 11. He says, all of these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction. Do you see the repetitive nature here of Paul? This is an example for you. Now what does this mean? What it means is this. We are prone to idolatry. And you say, well, we don't worship a golden calf or a, a metal structure. Now in some cultures, they do. In some cultures, like, this, this is immediately relevant when we think of idolatry and, and literally worshiping idols. Here in the West, not as immediately relevant, but just as relevant non, nonetheless. In that idolatry can be defined as this. Idolatry is uh, seeking joy and security in the wrong place. Seeking excitement and security in the wrong place. Now we are prone to idolatry. Whether that is a, a golden calf or an Asherah pole or a wooden statue or whether that is sex or money or power, we are prone to idolatry. Now this is something we've all experienced. Um, let me give an example. There was a man who had cancer. And while he was struggling with the cancer, he, he counted it a blessing because all of a sudden he was heavenly minded. So he was 
leaning into Christ. He, he thought about Christ all of the time. It was this spiritual high form as he was fighting cancer. Now, when he uh, had uh, defeated the cancer that was in his body, he was discouraged because uh, so quickly his mind began to drift away from Christ. He wasn't as heavenly-minded as he once was. He got back into work. He got back into life. And he went through a very difficult time of discouragement. How can I, how can I forget? How can I, I'm, I'm like back to the same guy I used to be. What happened? I mean, we, we experience this all the time. We'll have a, this mountaintop sort of experience, a spiritual high. We go through something and we are spiritually like on fire and then we kind of get back into life and we, we get back in their struggles and, 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 and we, we're, we're, we're back to drifting and back to seeking security and seeking excitement in the wrong places. How does this happen? Then we question it. Well, what was that? What, maybe, maybe it wasn't legit. Maybe it wasn't genuine because I had this spiritual and, and it, it didn't stick. It didn't last. So maybe it wasn't genuine. We get discouraged no, what it means is just simply this. We are prone to idolatry. We are prone to fall. Meaning there is no point in the Christian life in which you arrive and you're there. You're at the cross, you're hugging the cross, and you're good to go. See, the Corinthians believed that they had arrived. That they had received this knowledge. They were, they were good to go. And Paul is saying, look, there is no quicker way to fall, to wreck your life, than to believe that you have arrived and that you're no longer prone to wandering, prone to falling away, prone to idolatry. So the reason that we, the first reason that we fall is because we are prone to fall. The Old Testament is a messy book. The Old Testament is a book of one story after another of people wrecking their lives. And it's one big story that shows us that we, too, will wreck our lives if we don't take heed. The second reason we fall is this. We fall because we give into temptation. We fall because we give into temptation. And then you say, Joel, that is a no-brainer. Of course we fall because we give into temptation. Before you write this off as a no-brainer, let me, let me point out to you what Paul says in verse 13 and 14. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, He will provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure. Paul's giving the Corinthians a roadmap here. Like, listen, temptation is about to come. All right? And there is no temptation that is not common to man and that you cannot endure. What do we see here? First, we see this. Your situation is not as unique as you think. All right? I was up. I, I, I was absolutely uh, um, an insomniac. Is that a word? Somebody? Yes? All right. I was an, an insomniac last night. I didn't sleep at all. All right? And I was up at 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning. I was sitting on my couch working on this, working on my face. And I was, I was grumbling, and I said to God, do you not realize that I have to preach in the morning? <laughs> do you not realize that I can't preach with no sleep? All right, I'm like an eight-hour kind of guy. 
And I thought to myself, like, nobody else struggles with this. Like, I am alone. I felt so alone in my struggle. And then I read, I read my text again. I'm like, wait a second. There is no struggle not common to man. Meaning there are other people who also couldn't sleep all night and they have to do something in the morning. You see what I'm saying? Now, we, we have to realize this. This is a simple truth, but we have to swallow it. You're not as special as you think, all right? You're not as unique. Your struggle is not as unique. Well, you don't know, man. Like, my boss is, nobody has a boss like my boss. There is no struggle that is, that is not common to man. Well, nobody has a marriage like I have, or nobody has a singleness like I, like I have. Um, no, your struggle is common. Now, I- instead of sort of taking offense to that because we want to be so unique, let's actually take hope in that. Let's take courage in the fact that, that, it's, that it's common. Uh, when, whenever I'm counseling somebody who struggles with depression, as an example, and I'll, and I'll share with them uh, various theological giants from the past, heroes of, of, of mine, pastors and theologians, who also struggled with depression. You know what? People always take hope in that. People always say, oh, wow, so you can struggle with depression and, and, uh, and keep your mind focused on Christ and finish, finish well. See, when we realize that we, our struggle is not so unique and that it's a common struggle to humanity for all time and, and that many other Christians today struggle in the same way, let us take hope in that, first of all. Secondly, what we see Um, is, uh, uh, is that there is always a way out of the temptation that we are facing. There's always a way out. Now, is there a way out of temptation? Now, wait a second. Let's be clear as to what Paul's talking about here. See, a lot of times we think like this. We think, in order for me not to fall into idolatry or not to fall away from Christ, then I must not be tempted we think the very temptation itself is sort of like, bam, I'm, I'm there, I'm falling now. Um, what Paul says, let's, let's actually just look at it again. He says uh, very clearly, he says that there will be a way out, not from temptation. There's going to be a way out uh, from, from sin, from falling into sin. And then it says that last line of verse 13, he says, um, uh, with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Everybody say endure. We don't like that word as Christians, do we? We want free from. We want, we don't have to struggle with it. We want, we don't have to have that temptation. I want to just flip the temptation switch, all right, and I'm good to go. No longer am I tempt- tempted with, with any of my, my, my idols, my sin struggles. And what Paul says is, no, the temptation often does remain. But what God has promised you is the strength to endure the temptation. And so you see, we fall because we don't endure. We fall because we give in to the temptation. And we drift back into finding our excitement and security in the wrong places. So that is the second reason that we wreck our lives. The third reason is this. We fall because 
we forget that real evil exists. We fall because we forget that real evil exists. Look at verses 16 through 21. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So what he's referring to here, I'll walk down here, is, is communion. So he says, um, he says, we have the one bread. This is the representation of the body of Christ, right? We eat this in re, re, uh, as a reminder of the work that Christ did for us on the cross. We eat this as to the Lord. We, I'll stick this off to the side. That, that'll be mine later on. Uh, we take the cup and we drink this as a reminder of Christ's blood, right? And so we come to the table every week, Paul says, um, and, and, and we participate in this way in the life the death of Christ, this reminder of his goodness in the gospel. Now look what he goes on to say. He then says in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are, they not, uh, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So he's saying here now, so you're, you're taking the Lord's Supper and then you're also going over here and eating the meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So am I, going, am I being wishy-washy? What am I, this is what Paul's saying. Am, am I saying then that idols really are something? And then he says, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. See, this is what we often do is we realize that there is no power in the idol. All right, There is no power in that, uh, the idol of beauty or the idol of um, sex or the idol of money. And so then we become... Uh, loose. We become free. We become carefree, I should say. We, beca- we become careless in some ways. And so we, we go into the temple and we eat the meat carelessly because, oh, it's just, and what's an idol? An idol is absolutely nothing. There's no power there. And Paul says, be careful. Don't be so quick here because evil truly exists. So often, the, the, the pastoral challenges that we face in ministry is sitting down with somebody who came to understand the gospel, they came to believe the gospel, and then they forgot that real evil actually exists. And he says, you can't participate in this and in the table of demons. Are you, like, whose team are you on? Are you hanging with the demons? Or are you hanging with Christ? Playing for the Steelers, the Ravens, you get the picture here, right? Now, I almost feel goofy sometimes talking about demons, right? Anybody with me? Like, it's, it just feels like, I don't know, weird? Like, what are you talking about? Like, paranormal activity sort of stuff? Like, what's going on here? Let me, let me risk um, sounding even goofier just to give you an example of what I think I have seen in ministry. I think I have seen uh, married couples destroyed by demons. 
maybe a demon. If we could see the spiritual world, who knows? What we, we might see like one dude, like one demon, just going around, hanging over, hanging over here, destroying. So here, this, is the, this is the process that I have seen, all right? And I'm just giving you an example of a married couple. Married couple process. First, um, they realize that, that there is no power in the idol of pleasure, of, of, of hedonism. And so they become, they become careless with pleasure. And they, they, uh, they, uh, they become lovers of, of pleasure, of seeking pleasure. Uh, they don't look out for the other person. They don't care for, for, for the other person. And before long, uh, they are far away from Christ. They, they don't even know what happened. And they are hedonistic. They're living their lives for their flesh. And one of them leaves in pursuit of uh, a, a different fleshly passion. I've seen that multiple times. As if, as if there is one spirit, an evil spirit, just moving through, seeking to destroy whichever marriage he can destroy. My point is this. If we, believe, if we forget that, that real uh, evil exists, what happens? We become careless we don't watch our backs, and we are destroyed. Now, I'm not talking about paranormal activity stuff. I think in some ways that's a tool of the devil as well, to, like, to cause us to believe that demons are freaky. All right, demons, they're not going to be turning your faucets on and off. All right? Frankly, they don't care about your water. All right? It's like, <laughs> just wait till he gets his water bill. You know what I'm saying? Or middle of the night, turning your thermostat up. BG&E, here we come. <laughs> You demons! My house has demons in it. No. Demons are actually much more horrifying than that. Demons don't cause us to run to Christ in, in hope. They cause us to turn our eyes away from Christ. You see, you see what happens? The, uh, we're, we're tricked into believing that something is exciting. Is something is, uh, is, I don't know, desirable. We can find security there. And then we begin to find our security there. And we begin to find our joy and our excitement there. And before long, what we've done is we've drifted far away from Christ. And our spiritual lives are shipwrecked. And friends, that is far more horrifying than any paranormal activity crap. The reason we fall is because we forget. We become careless. We forget that real evil exists. And it exists to destroy you. It seeks to destroy you. Number four, the fourth reason we fall. We fall because we don't put the other guy first. Now this is part of the pattern that we've seen in people who fall is, is they, they become self-centered and they say, if, if I can do it, then it's okay. They start to live, instead of living uh, out of love for the other, they live out of what's right for them or what they're free to do. If I can, then I should, becomes their motto. And so they begin to then take advantage of every opportunity that they can take as long as it's free, as long as they're able to do so, and they no longer really care about the other guy. They don't seek to build up the other. And frankly, if it hurts, if your activity hurts the other guy, well then it's his fault, you tell yourself, not your own. Look what Paul says, and continuing to just warn them of, against falling. 
in verses 23 and 24, he says, all things are lawful. Not everything is helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. All things are lawful probably was a quote from the Corinthian letter. And so he's quoting them, and he's like, yeah, you, you guys are right, but come on. Not everything is helpful and builds up. Verse 24, let nobody seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And then he goes on with these instructions. So sure, eat if you're invited to somebody's house, but if, if they say, hey, this is offered to an idol, meaning they're eating it in worship of an idol, then, then for the sake of their conscience, not yours, refrain so that they might see Christ in you. They might see a love for Christ in you. What he's saying is this, live your life not for yourself, but live your life for your brother or sister for their good for what is helpful and useful for them. You might be able to handle something. You might be able to watch something or listen to something or eat something or drink something. But for your brother or your sister, it would destroy them. There are, for, for them, it's, it's as if they're eating this meat to demons, all right? They're eating it, and there's demons all over it for them. Because there are, there are, there are wicked, evil spirits that know that they're, 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 they're tricky and they're smart, and they know that they can use this as a vice or as a pull in this person's life away from the Lord, and they will. And so he's saying, now, live for the other. Love your brother and sister. Place their spiritual needs ahead of your own rights. Guys, this has sort of been the, what, what Paul's been repeating the last three chapters, isn't it? This is summing up everything that he has been talking about. Instead of, of saying, how much uh, can, I, can I do before it becomes sin? Paul says, wrong question. The better question is, does this help my brother or sister? Is this useful for the edification of God's people? Now, don't you see that if you live with the other in mind, if you live placing others ahead of yourself, don't you see how that also protects you from falling? So the fourth reason we fall is because we don't do that. We live with ourselves first of all, and then we become self-centered. And we seek to gratify our own flesh. And we fall. We fall because we live for ourselves. The key to this whole chapter is found in verse 14. He says, flee or run from idolatry. Have you ever seen Animal Planet where there's a gazelle being chased by a lion? What does the gazelle do? He runs. Why? Does the lion just want to play? Does he just want to like play hopscotch or something? And they're chasing each other? No. The lion is seeking to destroy the gazelle. And the gazelle runs. Paul says, run from idolatry. Run from these things that seek to destroy you. Run from anything that would take your eyes off of Christ. Run. This isn't a game. This is a lion that is seeking to destroy you. So how do we run? How do we run? 
See, so often we can uh, study the Scriptures and we can see um, the, I don't know, the, uh, the, the description of those that fall, and then, and then we say, okay, so how do I do that? Like, give me something practical, you know, give me, some, give me something that I can go do in my life, and so give me a secret, or give me a book to read, or a conference to go, like, give me something that I can, like, like, how do I avoid these things, and how do I run? And we begin to believe that the Bible is sufficient enough to tell us what our problem is, but not sufficient to tell us how to fight, Right? So let's just keep it really simple this morning. How do we run like a gazelle from the lion that is seeking to destroy us? How do we do it? Instead, these four points, to, uh, we, we fall because we're prone. We fall because we, we, uh, we give in to temptation. Let's just simply reverse these. And instead of making them uh, descriptors of the person who falls, let's turn them into exhortations. So this is how... You keep yourself from falling. Number one, remember that you are prone to idolatry. Don't ever believe that you have arrived. Don't ever believe that because of the spiritual high that you're currently on, that you are there and you can now relax on the cross. But no, you are always prone to fall. You are always prone to fall back. For those of you who have fallen back, Know why you've fallen back. It's not because your previous spiritual experience was false. It's because you have a sinful heart. You have a rebellious heart that is prone to fall back. And you need the grace of God to continue moving forward in your Christian life. Number two, remember that you have the power to endure temptation. So temptation may stay, it may, it may remain like a thorn in the flesh, it may, it, it may stick with you, but friends, you have the strength to endure it. You have the strength to endure it. Don't let the enemy tell you otherwise. The greatest temptation you will ever face in life, and probably when we think of temptations and we think of trials in life, probably none of us in this room have experienced our worst yet. There's probably some, something that's coming that's going to be harder. But friends, there is no temptation that you will face that you cannot endure. How do we know that? This, this one phrase, God is faithful. God is faithful. And He will not allow you to go through something that you can't endure. So look to Christ and find your strength to endure temptation and just simply endure it. Number three, remember that evil exists and seeks to destroy you. Remember that. Don't forget that. Don't play around with evil. But remember that there is wickedness out there and it's, it's real and it will destroy you. And lastly, remember to live placing your brother or sister before you. Live with their well-being ahead of your own. And in doing so, you will keep yourself from falling. Paul sums this all up, pointing back to Christ. Look at this last line. It's actually the first verse of chapter 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am Christ. You see, for Paul, he has found that these, these previous idols 
that have been so prevalent, the, 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 the various gods that he has turned to are absolutely nothing. Like, we spend so much energy trying to please these gods, and what he's found is this. He's found that this God, the one true, real, and living God, has done something for us. For Paul, the, the, the big change for him was when he realized that it's not about me offering something to him, but about what he has offered to us. And this is Christ, who gave up his rights so that we might be made whole, who lived his life on our behalf, which we remember with communion as we take the bread and as we break it. This is the body of Christ that was lived for us and broken for us, his blood which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. It's something that God has offered us. And so Christ now for Paul has become precious. More precious than any, any previous idol that we can ever imagine. More precious than giving into sex, power, money, and whatever, uh, whatever that vice might be. More, pre- more precious than anything you've ever uh, sought uh, excitement in or security in. Christ is absolutely precious. He, was, he is like that fine wine which when we drink gives us more happiness than all the world has when their wine abounds. When we drink of Christ, we find that He satisfies, that He brings joy. When we drink of Christ, we find that He brings us security beyond our comprehension. For Paul, he saw Christ and it was all about Christ. And he says, I'm just seeking to imitate Christ. And so follow me. So as this father looking at his his daughter going off to college, don't forget these things. Don't forget, don't, don't go off into this world and be destroyed. Listen, it's hard to be a Christian in Baltimore City. There are plenty of vices in this city. There are plenty of opportunities. There are, there are jobs that seek to, uh, seek to consume us. There are um, relational problems. There, there, there is violence as we've recently experienced. It's hard to be a Christian in Baltimore City. It's hard to be a Christian in life. One thing I realized some time ago was this. If it wasn't for the grace of God keeping me a Christian, I would not be a Christian today. There's no way I could on my own continue day by day by day following Christ, relying on Christ, trusting in Christ when things seem to spiral out of control. But Christ is precious. And He keeps us. And day by day gives us the strength and the grace to follow Him. So let's flee idolatry. Let's run from that which would take our eyes off of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we ask that you seal these truths in our hearts. We ask that you help us uh, to, to remember that evil does exist, and that though we are prone to fall away, that you will never give us, put us through a temptation or a trial in life that we cannot endure and come out the other side refined. And as we sum this up, Lord, let us then live for the other person. Let us place the needs, the spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters in front of our own. 
and keep us from falling. Help us to run. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.